Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody, my name is Louise Greenwood and I'm Director of Education for Wessex LMCs and this is one, another one of our practice manager webinars um, on a Friday today um, for various different reasons. So hopefully that'll help some of you who we know find Wednesdays hard, um, but hopefully um, this is going to be recorded anyway, so do just listen afterwards if it's difficult for you to attend um, in person. I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Lombardi. Hi, Michelle, and she's Director of Primary Care for Business Services, and I'll be sharing some information later. I'm particularly pleased today to welcome Andy Freeman, um, who is an ex-Unison Regional Organiser and now a um, mediator. And we've asked Andy along because we're very conscious that the collective action, um, things are happening at the moment that possibly a lot of man practice managers might not be familiar with. So we're going to talk to Andy about the role of the rep and just at the moment collective action, what you can say to staff, what you can't say to staff. He's got some slides to go through, but also would it really encourage um, you to just um, put anything in the chat that you are interested in as you go. And just those of you who are a little bit earlier coming on the call, you may have heard Andy say a few sort of top tips for how to um, to work with <laughs> organisations or with, with, um, with unions in particular. So I'm going to shut up and share my screen and say thank you very much, Andy. We very much look forward to hearing from you okay thanks louise uh yeah as, as louise said i've uh was a regional uh organizer for unison for uh, uh just about 20 years and i've worked with health services in the past including uh working with uh with practice managers in gp surgeries and hospital trusts and uh, although Part of this webinar is talking about collective action, which I know is happening in the health service and in GP surgeries and practices around the country at the moment. Uh, the rep, reps uh, do a lot more than that, trade union reps, and therefore uh, what we'll talk about is the, the, the role of the reps within your workplaces. Uh, mainly, I, I suggest you would see probably reps for the most time when they tend to support or represent a member of staff who is um, either uh, have a grievance out or a complaint about something uh, regarding their work or they're unfortunately uh, being disciplined. I can't count the number of times I've represented somebody. There are far too many. But what I can do is count the number of times that I uh, and the uh, member have, have been successful. Uh, because those are few and far between. Because if somebody is facing a disciplinary sanction it's usually because they've done something wrong it's only when they haven't done something wrong that i've been successful so i think that's something to to mark down at the beginning that uh, most of the things that you will come across with a rep will be representing somebody who's either done something wrong or, or who has a, a genuine complaint so i'll also talk about if you can go on to the next slide uh louise uh, so what I'm going to take you through today is the role of uh, trade unions in the workplace, uh, basically regarding uh, meetings, what I've just been talking about, grievance and disciplinary meetings and the right to be accompanied to those. The role of the TU met more broadly, uh, including the role uh, of what they do uh, when there's uh, strike action or an industrial dispute. The role of the trade union rep in meetings that you may or may not have with them. 
obviously uh, industrial action as well, which is very much in the news at the moment. And if we've got time at the end, I'd also like to talk about uh, what are commonly known as off-the-record meetings or in legal terminology is without prejudice meetings and protected conversations. And there are, you may have heard those terms, you may not have heard those terms, but they can be very useful in resolving uh, disputes with individuals uh, and and uh, a collection of individuals. Uh, uh, but if we've got time, we'll, we'll touch on that at the end. So if you can turn to the next slide. Right. Uh, most people, most managers, uh, and certainly practice managers or business managers in, in GP surgeries, I would suggest most you will meet a rep when they are representing uh, some uh, somebody at a disciplinary or at a grievance hearing. Uh, the law is quite clear on the role, the right to be accompanied, because uh, people facing a disciplinary or raising a complaint do have the right to be uh, accompanied. Uh, section 10, for, the, for those who, who are interested in the law, it's Section 10 of the Employment Relations Act 1999. And the legal right is very specific. It's a legal right uh, to be accompanied to any meeting or hearing that can result in disciplinary action. And that's quite specific because there are some meetings you will have with, with people, uh, for example, investigation meetings or fact-finding meetings, if something's happened at work, that do not, uh, that meeting will not uh, result in, in disciplinary action. Uh, so, uh, and also, um, there's the right to be accompanied when you're raising a grievance with uh, with the uh, when you've got a complaint about your employment or when a, a member of staff has a complaint. So that's section ten of the Employment Act. But the next thing that's on that, the next bullet point is what does your policy say? So you will have in GP practices policies on disciplinary and grievances. And that may give an additional right, your policies themselves may give an additional right for representatives to attend and to support uh, members of staff at uh, disciplinary and grievance uh, investigations rather than the meetings themselves. And, and that's quite important because if it's in your policy, then obviously you need to follow it. Your policy may go above and beyond the law. The law is a statutory requirement that at the end of a meeting, if somebody can be disciplined at that meeting, uh, they uh, have the right to be accompanied. But your policies may say something that says at all formal stages of a grievance or at all formal stages of a disciplinary meeting, uh, you can be accompanied by a, a trade union representative. If your policies say that, then obviously a, a trade union representative can be present at uh, an investigation meeting, but they don't have the statutory right to be. That would depend on very much what your policies say. And the policies are not just about trade unions as well. Uh, the, the, law, the, the, the law actually does allow people to take a work colleague in uh, rather than a, a, a trade union representative. 
they allow a, a workplace trade union representative and a workplace trade union representative is somebody that's elected in your workplace uh, to represent members of a certain union, be that the BMA or, or the RCN, uh, Royal College of Nursing or, or Unison or GMB or some of the other unions. And um, also it, it allows a trade union official, a paid trade union official, somebody like me in the past who, who was a full-time official for Unison, what the law doesn't allow for is family members to attend uh, on behalf of, of somebody, a friend that doesn't work there, or a legal representative like a, a solicitor or a lawyer, unless that is specifically allowed within your policies or specifically allowed in, uh, say, a doctor's uh, uh, contract of employment. So again, it's very much, you're very much, uh, although the law gives a, a, a requirement of what is statutory, statutory, I can't say that word, statutorily required for a, uh, for accompaniment uh, to be accompanied to the meeting, it's not necessarily uh, the be all and end all. Now, obviously, there's things um if a problem, for example, if you have a staff who's particularly stressful and, and is very stressed about going to an investigation meeting, you may want to consider allowing them to bring a, a family member there to be reasonable, but you don't have to. You also could allow a trade union rep to be there for moral support and investigation meeting, despite your policies uh, not um, agreeing to that. It all depends on the individual circumstances. For example, if the if the person has a disability, they might want support, and it might be a reasonable adjustment to allow some support at uh, something other uh, than uh, a a one of the statutory uh, requirements to to be accompanied. And I think the most important word in the law is the fact that employers and you would be the representative of, of, of the employer meeting the member, must act reasonably given the circumstances. And that's why it's a case-by-case -case basis. And I would, uh, I would encourage everybody to take that word with them from this meeting and said, would it be reasonable to stop this person being represented in this meeting solely because our policies say they don't have the right to be represented at that meeting, particularly if that person uh, is going into an investigation where they're quite literally frightened about it. It's quite a daunting uh, exercise and, and uh, to go through. And uh, they may be genuinely suffering from stress and anxiety. In those cases, uh, an employer acting reasonably would say, yes, you can take somebody in, in there for moral support, but they don't take part in that meeting. They're just there as a shoulder to lean on, somebody to lean on to help the person through the meeting. The last bullet point on, on that is the ACAS Code of Practice. Now, the ACAS Code of Practice do do a, um, a they do a, an ACAS Code of Practice on the handling on grievance and disciplinary procedures. Now, ACAS stands for, uh, I always forget what ACAS stands for, actually. It's an 
Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. And basically, they are a government agency that ensures that uh, employers and employees know their rights of what happens in disciplinary agreements. And the ACAS Code of Practice on disciplinary, disciplinary and grievances is, I would say, the Code of Practice is only a few pages long. So I'd say it's essential reading for any manager uh, wanting to enter into, if you have, if you need to enter into those meetings where you're doing a disciplinary investigation or disciplinary hearing, as many practice managers have to do, I know. And so the ACAS code of practice is really essential reading for you and, and your team, if you like, to, to know what is required of you. Um, also, the ACAS do produce a guide, which is far more detailed, which actually takes a step-by-step -step approach to going through a disciplinary procedures or what you should do. They've even got template letters for people to send if you're not used to sending letters, inviting people to meetings, inviting people to, to investigatory meetings or disciplinary meetings. The ACAS Code of Practice, coupled with the guide, is very useful. The last bullet point on that is questions, but I understand uh, from Louise that uh, nobody, uh, uh, you, you can't speak or ask questions, but I will, if you put your questions in the chat, I'm happy to go along to the questions at the end of this. I've got a few more slides to go through where I can actually try and answer them before the webinar ends. So if we can go uh, to the next slide, Louise. I will do that. Um the, the managers on the call were happy to put in their um, questions via the Q&A box. So I will absolutely stop you if there are any questions coming in. So please do do ask okay. or save them in if you like. And I will go on to the next slide. Thank you. Thank you. And Michelle's very helpfully put the link to the ACAS Code of Practice on Disciplinary and Grievance Procedure. Thank you for that, Michelle. I appreciate that. And I would en encourage you to go there. Just print it off or, or, or leave it on your computer as a aid memoir of what you should do because at the end of the day the ACAS code of practice is is a guide for employers to walk you through the system if if any of that fails if you fail to follow the ACAS code of practice if anything does go to tribunal if you're unfortunate enough to have a, a case at tribunal a failure to follow the ACAS code of practice won't necessarily make, make or break or win or lose a case but if you did lose a case, the failure to follow the ACAS code of practice can increase the award that an employee would get as a result of the failure. It doesn't hinge on the rights or wrongs, but if you're wrong, then failure to follow the ACAS code of practice does make a difference in any awards that are given. I've got on now on the gone on to the role of the trade union rep. Now I did put a question. What do you think their role is? Many people, I think uh, we were having a discussion before that most people only come across trade unions. Like trade unionists like Mick Lynch from the RMT, RMT has been taking the the train. Uh, uh, the uh, train not drivers that's a di different union but taking the trains on strike for that. and you only tend to see trade unions when there's been a failure uh, and there has been on strike and I consider uh, you know a trade union having to go on strike as a failure of the negotiations 
prior to them having to go on strike because mo- most trade union uh, representatives and full-time officials and general secretaries will tell you that a strike, going on strike and withdrawing your labour, although it's legal, is absolutely a last resort. Nobody wants to do it, not the member of staff, not the trade union rep, not the regional officer as I was, and not the general secretary. It is a it is a result of a failure of all the other things that go before that, which is about the negotiation. Whatever the issue is, whether it be pay, whether it be uh, any other uh, you know uh, employment issues that have, have been subject to negotiations within within a workplace and within your workplaces, but mainly the trade union rep. Uh, if you have them, and if you have what's called a recognition agreement, where people uh, from a certain trade union within your practices can uh, elect trade union reps, most of their uh, work will be representing members of staff in meetings. Uh, they may also represent uh, members of staff in management meetings where trade unions are invited along if you're changing policies or if you're if you're you know uh, changing the way of working or you're wanting to change hours or wanting to change the the rosters that uh, doctors are on and the and the, the the work that they they do and looking at changes to job description things like that that's when you will get mainly trade unions representing individually their members and also collectively a group of members Trade unions also, uh, trade union reps also uh, are involved in organising. And we're coming on to the next bullet point, which is trade union duties and trade union activities. And there's a very, very uh, distinct difference between the two, because I've talked about representing. That's trade union duty. People are allowed to be represented in their workplace if they're a member of a, of a trade union and you have a, a, a recognition agreement that recognises that trade union. The representation of those members are trade union duties. The uh, representation of those members collectively in management meetings are trade union duties, and they are a given time off for under, undertaking those trade union duties. And you may, may have time off agreements with trade unions for doing undertaking trade union duties. Trade union activities are different. Trade union activities are uh, things like recruiting, organising stuff, and it's this is what happens outside the workplace. This is a matter for the trade union. So whilst your whilst employers are responsible for allowing uh, reasonable time to do trade union duties, for example, when representing somebody at a meeting, if it's a workplace representative that's going, you're not um, uh, legally obliged to give time off for trade union activities for recruiting, um, the printing of leaflets and things like that, or doing updates on union websites. So there's a very distinct difference between the two. But most important for... Um, and I would say this in my experience with working with practice managers, the most important thing that a trade union can be for you as a practice manager is a point of contact for you. And uh, because they, they 
Uh, on the next, uh, I'm not going on to the next slide yet, but on the next slide, I do talk about trade union reps being helpful. We all see trade union reps on the TV talking about strike action, and we're coming on to industrial action next, but they are a useful point of contact for you. And I would encourage any practice manager wanting to have a good relationship with uh, any trade union, whether that be the BMA, the RCN, or uh, Unison, GMB, is to make yourself known to them. They'll make yourself themselves known to you and have a genuine dialogue with them. You know, drop in every every month or so and uh, have, uh, have a meeting, just to, five minutes, just to see if everything's all right, because they can assist you in 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 managing a what can be uh no uh, practices since covid and, and during covid have been a really hectic and busy working and stressful working environment and they can help uh managers to um spot problems and nip things in the bud let him say so if we can go on to the next slide We've talked about investigation meetings uh, where reps may be involved in investigation meetings. We've talked about uh, grievance hearings where reps, where reps can be, uh, uh, have the right to accompany um, uh, members of staff who raise grievance and obviously at disciplinary hearings. But there is uh, one of the questions I was asked to address is what to do if a rep can't attend a meeting. And again, this is the this is the Employment Relations Act, nineteen ninety six, which also uh, asks um, employers to act reasonably. But if you are wanting to arrange a disciplinary hearing, and the uh, member of staff can't attend that meeting, and the reason they can't attend that meeting is because a rep is not available, and a rep uh, or a, a trade union official does have, I can vouch for them, having fairly hectic and busy diaries, like, uh, like anybody else who, who works in the health service at the moment, and they may not always be able to attend the meeting. The law, the Employment Relations Act, would allow them to, to postpone one meeting as long as they give you another date within five working days of that postponement. And that's important uh, because you do get some occasions where reps uh, won't want to, uh, uh, or even members of staff won't want to go to meetings, and you'll get perpetual postponements. I mean, apart from illness and long-term illness, which can make, make a difference, it's, it's something that you need to take into account as far as reasonableness is concerned again. Now, if a rep can't attend a meeting and says, but I can attend a meeting in seven days, my advice would be to take that and do it in seven days. If a rep postpones twice and can't do it within five days, you've got the choice of pr proceeding with the meeting because it's the second postponement. So you only have to postpone once and you only have to postpone if uh, they give you another date within five working days. But again, be reasonable. If it's seven working days, chances are you would agree. But if they're saying, I can't do it this month and I can't do it for 30 days, then you have every right to proceed with that meeting. The last but one bullet point on there is, can reps be helpful? And the simple answer to that is yes. 
I always used to go into meetings saying that uh, uh, when I met a new employer, uh, whether that was a hospital trust, whether that was a GP practice, uh, whether that was a, a local council, I used to work in, in local councils, I always used to introduce myself as a problem solver rather than a problem causer. And reps can assist managers and management and, and human resources across the board in identifying problems pretty early on and trying to get them nipped in the bud. It won't always be the case that you can nip things in the bud, but hopefully a rep can, can effectively be some, uh, an extra pair of eyes and ears. And if you do have a built up a good working relationship with a trade union rep or a trade union official, they can be incredibly helpful. When they're on the other side of the table, I'll have to admit, they can also be incredibly unhelpful. And that, you know, and we need, obviously you need to take that into account as well. But uh, reps that have, that you've got a good working relationship, be a good professional working relationship can be incredibly helpful, particularly in helping you with a member of staff that may not be as helpful as the rep because the rep can quite obviously behind the scenes point out to the member of staff that the member of staff is being unreasonable and therefore they need to book their ideas up and, and uh, sort themselves out or they could be on the road to disciplinary action and, and uh, you know something that the, the member of staff wouldn't, wouldn't want so reps can be very helpful there's always members of staff that the rep can't be helpful with and uh, you, you and, and I will probably know those members of staff in the past uh, communication uh, is key as I said Keep open uh, an open door policy with reps and keep regular lines of communication uh, and uh, a two-way process. You can go to them if you've got a problem, see if you can iron out and they can come to you. And that's always worked, always worked for me and it always worked for managers that I managed to work with. So next uh, slide, please. Right. Industrial action. Everybody in the country has a legal right to join a trade union. I've got the next question is, what can you ask? This is in relation to industrial action. You have every right to ask somebody if they are uh, a member of a trade union. You have every right to ask somebody if, if you've had a notification that, that that trade union is going on strike, whether they are going on strike. And the employee has every right not to answer those questions. You can ask, but you may not get an answer. Uh, you, uh, it's. It, I can understand the difficulties with with strike action about uh, having to arrange uh, staff uh, finding out if staff aren't on strike, uh, and but and that's a very difficult uh, area to be in as a manager. But what you do have the right to know, and you should get two weeks' notice of any strike action, unless. Your, your surgery or your practice has agreed that seven days' notice is adequate. But the law at the moment, as it stands, uh, 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 demands that a trade union that have undertaken a lawful ballot, and I won't get into the legal details of a lawful ballot, but if a lawful ballot has taken place, the trade union has to tell you the workers, the, the, the uh, jobs of the workers that are under dispute, what the dispute is, whether that be pay or ter other terms and conditions, and 
give you a fortnight's notice of when uh, they would be taking strike, strike action. People who do take strike action are not entitled to be paid. Uh, they're withdrawing their labour, so they, they don't get paid. But I often find out, managers ask me, well, what if somebody's off sick? Uh, what if somebody is booked a holiday? Well, that individual, if they are on strike, has the option to cancel that one day's holiday and uh, not get paid for it and take part in the strike, even if they may be in Tenerife or even if they're in Spain or, or wherever, they can still take part in the strike action and, and choose not to get paid. If they have booked the holidays first, then they can take, their, they're perfectly entitled to take their holiday. Uh, if they're off sick, they should be entitled to sick pay as per normal or whatever whatever the uh, the practice agreed. But um, what you must be aware of is the tendency for people that have been balloted uh, for strike action, who then uh, are told by their trade union that go on strike, that then uh, are on sick on the day or book a holiday for that day after they've been told uh, there is strike action. Uh, I, I've known that many, many times, and that's a difficult thing to manage as a, as a practice manager, but people should not be booking holidays on days of strike unless it's already pre-booked and uh, it's already done. And y use your own discretion as to, as to whether somebody going on sick uh, on, a, uh, on a strike day is um, what I would call genuinely sick or wanting to get paid because they're not being on strike. It's a difficult judgment call sometimes, but you will know uh, the, the members of staff that you, you will work with. Andy, uh, can, I just, said, Andy yeah? can I just interrupt you, please? You've just had a question in, just for clarification. So when do the actual individuals have to tell the managers by? Um, we they know don't have to. They, they, don't, they have don't have to. No. Okay. No. So they don't. So, but the you'll get a letter to say that your employees might be taking action. Well, is that, is that yes. right? Um, yeah, you get you the date. Yeah, the date, the date of the strike action, and the reason for the strike action, and the and the workforce that is taking that strike action, whether that's nurses or junior doctors or ancillary staff or, or, or whatever, they will tell you uh, the, the, the sections of staff that are taking action, yeah. what they're taking action for and what the action is. It might be a half day, it might be a whole day, it might be 24 hours, it might be eight hours. It may be an overtime ban, or maybe what they call a work to rule, which is just working to your job description. It may be even withdrawing goodwill, you know, not working that extra half hour to, to cover somebody who's, who's gone out. But the Individuals themselves do not have to tell any uh, representation of management or the GP practice that they are going on strike. And I know that's frustrating, but yeah. that is the law at the moment. So you're allowed to um, them, but they don't have to give you an answer. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to ask, ask any members. Have anyway, you know, uh, you know are, are you going on strike tomorrow? And they may say yes. I am. Uh, they may say, I don't have to tell you, or they may say, no, I'm not. So the question can be asked, but the question shouldn't be asked with undue pressure either. Okay. It, there shouldn't be, if you don't tell me, I will do this, okay. which is actually breaking employment law. 
Okay, so they can uh, they just then be pressured to tell you. So they can choose just not to pitch up that day. Uh, yes, if they're if they're covered by the strike action, they're a member of the trade union, and even if they're in a sense. Uh, even if they're not a member of the trade union, which some some nurses, uh, you know, they won't be covered for the strike, but they can go on strike. Uh, most people in the room to a strike will join the trade union if they want to, so they're covered, if you like, for the legal strike action, even if they haven't been involved in the ballot. But they, uh, but yeah, the, the idea of strike action is withdrawing your labour. The idea of strike action in a, in, a, in a sense, is, is to make it difficult for the employer, whatever the rights or wrongs of the, of the action being taken, uh, the action of a strike is to be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And if managers knew every single person who was going on strike, every single person who wasn't going on strike, the strike wouldn't be as disruptive. So tra And trade union reps know that. But you will have relationships with your staff and you're quite in your rights to ask the question, but the individual employees are quite in their rights to refuse to answer it. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, the, the question at the end, so, so they can just not turn up for work. Yes, that's what strike action is, withdrawing your labour. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Andy. Okay. That's, I think that's my last slide. Well, that's really interesting. And I think we came, they came to the, the, the nub there, didn't we? Um, and, and, and this is sort of something that we're, we have been struggling with. And we had, um, and as an LMC, we've been discussing it within our team, what you can, what you can't say. And it's so you've made it crystal clear. And that has been extremely helpful for us. Um, Good. Thank there you. aren't any more questions at the moment. Um, so I think you were going to say, wait, did you want to mention just something about without prejudice, those sort of unofficial conversations? Oh, yeah. I think if you were able to spend a couple of minutes on that, I think, Michelle, if that's all right with you, just spend a couple of minutes on that, because I think that's, again, something that possibly practice managers might come across and it would just be helpful to have a little bit of sort of the, the basics yeah. of that too. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, without prejudice conversation, basically off the record conversations and protected, uh, protected conversations are very slightly different, but they're both designed, the without prejudice conversation and the protected conversation are both designed to try and resolve uh, issues that an employer has with an employee. Now, a protected conversation is not dependent on any pre-existing dispute. It could be uh, uh, the employer just wanting to not go down uh, uh, if, there, if there has been some uh, misconduct or some performance issues and the employer doesn't feel that they want to go, go down a fairly long-winded performance management scheme, they may open a protected conversation up before they go down that route with a member of staff in order to discuss terminating their employment at the end of the day. Uh, uh, and that's a protected conversation. That's protected. That's protecting law. It doesn't protect everything. And basically what the protected conversation does is that nothing that you discuss within that protected conversation or without prejudice meeting, uh, they're both the, the, the same as far as what's protected, um, 
Nothing that's discussed can be used against the employer in tribunals. So, for example, if a, if a um, members of staff says, yes, I'll have a protected conversation and a practice manager sits down with a receptionist or whoever and says, listen, we don't think it's working out. Uh, we, we've had a number of complaints. We haven't taken them formal yet. So we, we don't really want to, but we don't think it's working out. How do you feel? And that receptionist goes back and says, well, yeah, I'm not enjoying myself really. And and the practice manager then says, well, if we give you your notice pay, are you happy? And we'll give you a reference and what have you. And that can be done and none of it can be then brought up unless there is undue pressure put on. If you don't, for example, if, if uh, a manager goes in and says, if you don't do this, agree to this, we will take it down a disciplinary route or we will. So it's the threat side of it that's not protected. I also uh, wouldn't use protected conversations that involve any health and safety issues and any discrimination issues, because those are not protected within a protected conversation. For example, if somebody's on long-term sick and it's, it could lead to a disability, I would use the without prejudice uh, approach because that uh, is, is not specifically tied down to what is not protected by without prejudice conversation. And without prejudice conversations, take the main difference between without prejudice conversations and protected conversations is you have a without prejudice conversation when there is a dispute. So if somebody's been a long-term sick and they're going through the sickness procedure, if somebody has started a grievance... Uh, you can have a without prejudice conversation with them about uh, uh, about the, the complaints that they've raised if you don't think they're reasonable. Uh, and also if somebody has started down the disciplinary route. So there has to be a pre-existing dispute on a without prejudice conversation, whereas a protected conversation can just, it could be for regardless of the reason it can be had but they're very slightly different in law so it's better to use without prejudice obviously if there's an existing dispute and if that dispute is related to long-term sickness to disability or any uh, health and safety issues without prejudice is the way protected conversations can be started by an employer or a manager if you just want to explore whether somebody's happy at work or whether somebody is not improving the way you wanted them to, to do, uh, but you haven't started the formal process yet, then a protective conversation. They're all off the record. They shouldn't, they can't be used in tribunals unless there is undue pressure put on. And I would say timing is also undue pressure. So, uh, in, in the, uh, the ACAS uh, guide on this is to give people 10 days to respond to a protected conversation or to respond to a without prejudice conversation. That gives them ample time to consider all the knock-on effects, all the pros, all the cons, and to discuss it with a representative. The representative may have been at the meeting, of course, but it gives them time to reflect and consider and then come back and say, yes, I'm happy to leave on this termination agreement, or no, I'm not, I want to improve. Let's see how we can do that. But 10 days is what the ACAS, uh, ACAS guide actually suggests. Right, and that's good okay. to Yes, absolutely. Okay. There's, there's certainly um, lots and lots in that. There's ACAS 
obviously ACAS protocols out there which we can follow but it sounds like you would yeah. need some HR advice along it sounds like this, there are a few pitfalls you might fall into people might want to do that just before I know we're running out of time um, Andy but just a couple of things in the chat are protected conversations strictly confidential specifically including the employees speaking to other employees etc they, they should be you should make that point at the beginning this is a uh, a private and confidential uh, discussion between the management and that member of staff and should not be discussed outside the meeting. Yes, uh, both without prejudice. Obviously, they can discuss it with their reps and they may want to discuss it with their family for obvious reasons, but it shouldn't be spread amongst the workforce. They are confidential discussions. I've just noticed the other question. Just noticed what about people who have protected characteristics? Are there additional hoops to jump to without, without prejudice conversations? With, yes, with protected conversations, there, ha there are because discrimination and discrimination relates to any of the uh, protected characteristics, not just disability. Uh, so, yes, uh, there are more hoops to jump through with protected conversations than without prejudice. So you have to be particularly careful if the protected conversation can be seen to be discriminatory. And that's where I would say you need HR advice. Yes, yes. Lovely. One more thing, Andy, then I'm going to let you go. I'm just going okay. To um, talking about industrial action, I'm concerned. So one of the managers put in the chat, I'm concerned about this. If someone just doesn't turn up for work, they could have had an accident. I generally follow up anyone who's not just turned up to check they're okay. So can you still give them a ring and say, I would, I would have expected you, are you okay? And they can say yes or no, I'm on strike or should you follow us up or should you not? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean that that's that's a pretty good excuse to phone somebody up, <laughs> if, I, if I might say. Uh, you know, so it's very clever. But uh, again, they 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 don't have fans. I mean, the chances are, if 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 you've got ten nurses and they're and they're all in the RCN and nine of them don't turn in on a strike day, chances are they're on strike, and the, the one person who does turn up is not on strike. But you, I mean, I'm not one to tell managers what they, uh, well, I, I suppose uh, as far as the law is concerned, but at the end of the day, the questions can be asked, but you can't put pressure on and they're not obliged to answer. Okay, I think one of the, she just put a qualifying and that's for payment purposes. We just need to know, if, you know, why, why you're not, why you're absent. But oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the next day, the day after they come back, they should tell you that they've been on strike. Yeah. Okay, so that's how you work it. Yeah. Andy, this yes. is, so that is, has been so useful. Um, if, depending on what happens, we might have call you back in to get some more advice, but it's been really, really. No, useful. that's fine. I've definitely had my eyes open today and I'm sure a lot of the other managers on the call will equally will have done. So it's been really useful. You've been really clear and very helpful. So thank you so much and have a good weekend and we'll catch up with you again. Um, thank you. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Louise. Bye. Bye-bye. So Andy's going to leave us now, um, and I think it's going to be up to Michelle and I just so we've got a few other bits we want to rattle through. We'll, we will finish by 2 o'clock as we normally do because we're obviously aware of your time and lots of people, are, schools are breaking up and all sorts of things are happening today, aren't they? So um, I was just going to start off with just saying we had a webinar yesterday about the new GP contract. Richard Van Mellart's um, Deputy Chair of um, the GPC came to, to us um, also, which was very, very helpful. Laura, um, our joint CEO, ran through some lots of the contract. Michelle was there to some of the, um, there's a lot of the chat. So if you want to listen to that, I've sent out an email today to all GPs and all practice managers. Please don't show 
share it further than within your practice? We're just conscious that it obviously it is a sensitive issue. We were discussing about what happens after the contract and what happens if people don't like the contract. So I'll just, just be aware of that. Um, but hopefully that will be useful for you. If you haven't had the email or somebody says they want it, please just email me in and I can sort that one out for you. Um, we also left it with, because a lot of the detail of the contract isn't quite with us. A lot of it is, but we're not quite there with a lot of it. Some of the really crucial things, especially about access, so as soon as we've got it, we will share. Um, and Richard Van Melat did promise he would come back to also discuss the relevance of this sort of thing for GP practices in a couple of weeks' time, whenever we think that the time's right. So now, Michelle, I think it's over to you to rattle through a few a few updates for us. Thanks, Louise. So uh, just a few to, to go through. So the first one is around NHS pension flexibilities. And in light of the budget announcements, obviously, there's some changes uh, for members age 55 and over. Uh, PCSC have been receiving a, a large number of calls in relation to this. Um, they're suggesting to look at the NHS pensions website, but we are aware that the NHS pensions website is in the process of being updated. So um, please, it, NHS employers have actually got quite a useful um, uh, information on their website, which what we'll do is we'll pop the link in with our um, webinar and podcast on our website to, to have a look. It summarises the changes um, and also I believe there are some up and coming seminars that NHS pension scheme members uh, are able to access so they can understand how personally they might be able to work more flexible with the NHS. And again, we'll put both of those, the NHS employers uh, link and also the seminars that NHS pensions are offering. We'll pop those links with our um, webinar on our podcast site. Um, Louise, do you want to just, uh, I think we've got a couple of slides for the next um, items. We I was... have, before we just move on to that, may I just say, we've just got a um, pension seminar ourselves coming up uh, this before before the end of May. It's going to be on the 15th of May. Justin, it is for managers, for anyone, any of you who are administering the pension scheme. We know it's complicated. We know it's not everybody's favourite thing. But there's there'll literally be the, how do I do it? What do I do? What do I send back? How do I do it? What do I tell the staff? Everything you can possibly think of that you need to know about pensions. That'll be on the 15th of May at 12.30. So that's that'll go out on our website next week. I just wanted to butt in and say that, Michelle. So excuse okay. me. And I'm going to share my screen now. So the next couple of slides, I just there was there was key bits of information that I didn't want to get wrong. So I thought I'd pop them into slides and then we can have a look at them. Okay, so the first one relates to a supplies update. So we just wanted to highlight that the FTR1988 safety needle, needle is no longer available. However, there is an alternative that um, practices can order, which is the F. TR3008 safety needle. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much done. Next slide. So this one um, is a little bit more complex. So workforce returns at practices supply uh, on a regular basis. Uh, the GPC England, so the General Practitioner Committee in England has been undertaking a piece of work to look at the returns that are being received um, from practices. And they're um, nervous and anxious that there, it would appear that the returns around GP hours uh, potentially doesn't reflect what GPs are working. So they've pulled together a bit of a checklist on uh, when you submit these to try and ensure that the hours that the return reflects the hours that GPs are working, as this really helps when they're negotiating uh, around the contract and, and to identify what they're providing uh, for their patients and to meet their needs. So really just a quick um, run through. So returns for each GP are filed in hours per week and should reflect the work being done during a normal week, but and also not to include when they're on leave. So uh, actually include the week that they would normally work. It's important that returns reflect the actual hours worked. 
There are two boxes where hours worked per week can be entered. One shows contracted hours and one shows actual hours. So for salary GPs, and only, uh, only the contracted hours box is used in the returns. The contractors and zero hours GPs, only the actual hours box is used in return. So a slightly variance of the boxes you use. The one that I thought was interesting, that it then goes on to say, if the same numbers are put in both boxes, it will ensure the hours are correctly captured. So I was going to go back to the BMA because that felt like you might not be able to put them in both boxes um, for each of these roles. So I was just going to clarify that. It felt like it might contradict a little bit, but we'll, we'll have a look at that. Um, and then you should factor in all work done over the course of a week in providing NHS services and to include CPD and anything that is done from home. And that actually this information is published on the um, NHS digital website and that one full-time equivalent doctor is associated with 37 and a half hours per week. So if you want to unshare, that's all I wanted to add on that one. So it's really just a plea from the GPC England asking for practices to reflect the actual hours GPs are working as it really helps with their negotiating um, uh, the contract. And then the final thing I think we just wanted to update on was just to ask you to bear with us. We are looking at our translation services webpage and we are aware that the information on there that might be slightly out of date. Um, so we are working through that uh, to make sure it's updated. Um, but we just wanted to confirm that the cost of practice translation services should be met and is met by the ICB. And we believe that there are some areas that potentially is going through re-procurement um, on that and that we will update and clarify the current, current arrangements as soon as we can on our website. And that's all I wanted to pick up. Lovely. Thank you, Michelle. Um, and just finally from me, just to let you know that the Innovations Conference, which we've talked about before, should be advertised hopefully later on today. So 6th of July, sort of at the Aegeus Bowl in Southampton. Um, we've tried to find an innovative big venue. It's not easy across our patch, but hopefully that'll be easy for you to get to. Lots of different ways of working. Some involving tech, some involving AI, some not involving tech at all. Um, some about practice systems, recalls, rotors. We're talking about how to inspire people and manage change and the consequences of not changing. We've got a social media channel going for that too. A motivational speaker and lots more besides. So hopefully it'll be a great day for you to get together as it usually is. Um, so it'll be on 6th of July. As I say, it'll be open to bookings later on today. Um, and we would encourage you to bring members of your team that you think would really enjoy looking at different systems, different things, different technology. Someone completely inspire you think we could never do that in a month of Sundays, but actually we could really do this. Um, talk to people about also the, what, they're what they are um, also doing in their practices. I'm going to have a session also on safe working. We're talking a little bit about how, how we're managing the demand, which obviously is a question that I'm sure lots of you are having repeatedly in your practices. So we're going to have some examples of what some practices have done. And they are very, some of them really, really simple things. And you can then talk to the people who've done them and how did that work? How did you start? How did you convince your team? What does it look like? How do you evaluate it? All the things that you need to know. So hopefully that'll be useful for you. So uh, thank you again for being with us today. We know it's a Friday before the Easter holidays for a lot of you. So it's very, very much appreciate you being with us. Hopefully it was useful for you to have Andy Freeman coming in. I certainly learned a lot. So, and if you think there's anybody else like that, that you think suddenly, gosh, we're going to a new world now, we need some help from, do let us know. We're very happy to invite all sorts of people along. They might not always say yes, but they often they do. Um, so thank you very much, Michelle. It's been absolutely fabulous to spend some time with you as ever. And um, have a good weekend, everybody. And we'll see you again very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.